Jesus was a Jew, not a Christian. Giza Vermish, one of the greatest scholars in the studies of the historical Jesus, mentioned this phrase in his book, Jesus in His Jewish Context, which sheds light on Jesus in the Jewish context that pertains to his era. Jesus' life cannot be separated from the Galilean environment he grew up in. This will be especially relevant in our study of those obscure years of Jesus' life, such as his infancy, adolescence, and the nature of his life in his 20s, alongside with his intellectual and religious development, which unfortunately, there are no certainties behind what actually happened during this period. Rather, all explanations presented in these episodes regarding this matter are based on the assiduous work of researchers. With full awareness of these difficulties and obstacles, which we will meet as we try to understand and determine the nature of Jesus' personal and Jewish life, let's first begin by inspecting the external factors, such as the socio-cultural factors that would have influenced the personal life, the mind, and the social development of Jesus in first century Nazareth. These factors include the language Jesus spoke, the education he received, the job he practiced, and his socioeconomic status. The first question we will attempt to answer is, how did Jesus speak? What language did he use while preaching the multitudes? How did the disciples receive his parables? And what effects did his words have on his listeners? Jesus taught in the Roman provinces of Galilee and Judea, and his words had substantial influence on his followers. Thus, Jesus spoke in the language or in the dialect understood by the people of those regions. But now the question is, what language did the people of Galilee and Judea speak? The simple answer to that is, we do not know for sure, as John Meyer pointed out. We do not have an audio recording from first century Palestine. All we have are compositions and inscriptions which date back to that era in Palestine. The ambiguity associated with this type of evidence, however, caused a sharp division amongst researchers about the language Jesus spoke. Some asserted that he spoke Greek. Others believed it to be Aramaic. And others argued he spoke Hebrew. One of the most meticulous researchers in regards to this matter was John Emerton, who attempted to find common grounds between the different opinions. And he said that Aramaic was the common language among the people of Galilee. Jesus spoke Aramaic there or in other words, amongst the people of Galilee. However, Jesus spoke both Hebrew and Aramaic in Judea at different times, which were both the common languages of those regions. The ambiguity regarding what language Jesus spoke can be due to many factors, such as the scarcity of two primary sources, namely, the literary works and the archaeological inscriptions of that time. 
The most notable of these inscriptions are the funerary inscriptions found on the tombs of the dead, which show us the language of the dead or the language of their families. However, some factors impacted these funerary inscriptions. For example, some families were inclined to write on the tombstones in the language that dominated at their time. The scholar Jan Nicholas Sevenster points out that many containers which contained Jewish bones or their relics had inscriptions in Greek, which was the language of the family. It was very common for the Jews to put the bones of the dead who were poor in a coffin made of wood, or in stone if they were rich. Some scholars mention that the Aramaic language declined in light of the Hellenistic dominance of the Seleucids in Syria during the 2nd and 3rd centuries BC. The Seleucid Empire was a Hellenistic or Greek state that ruled central Anatolia, Persia, Syria, the eastern Mediterranean, Mesopotamia, and what is now Kuwait, Afghanistan, and parts of Pakistan and Turkmenistan. It is important to note that the evidence gathered from the inscriptions dating back to the 2nd century BC up to the 2nd century AD does not necessarily tell us what language the Jewish people spoke at the beginning of the 1st century AD. The real decline in Jewish identity began under the authority of the Maccabees and the Hasmoneans. The Maccabees are a Jewish military group that revolted against the rulers of Syria, the Seleucids, and were capable of establishing the Hasmonean dynasty, which ruled Judea and the surrounding regions between around 164 to 63 BC. They were famous for their strong zeal for the Jewish religion, and they opposed the spread of the Hellenistic culture and the Greek language in the Jewish community. The Hasmoneans were the ruling dynasty of the Kingdom of Judea in the 2nd and 1st century BC and they were mentioned in the first book of the Maccabees, specifically in chapters 2 and 14. The second Hasmonean king in Judea, Alexander Janius, and who acted as high priest as well, issued the first coin during his reign, which contains both Hebrew and Greek. Alexander ruled from 103 to 76 BC, and he was the son of John Hyrcanus. He inherited the kingdom from his brother Aristobulus I and married his brother's widow, Queen Salome Alexander. He was recognized as a bloodthirsty and cruel tyrant because he was behind the civil war that erupted for the sake of expanding the kingdom. At the end of the first century BC, King Herod the Great continued to Hellenize the Jewish community, or in other words, make the Jewish community more Greek-like in culture. However, 
There was an attempt to revive the language of the ancestors during the time of the Maccabees, during which the spread of the Hebrew and Aramaic languages was emphasized in Palestine, as evidenced by the texts of Qumran, which were discussed briefly in our study of the Didache. One can ask, how widespread was Greek in first century Palestine? The use of Greek differed from region to region and from one social class to another. However, these differences were not significant since even the well-known Jewish historian Josephus did not have a good grasp of the Greek language, despite using it when he wrote about the history of the Jews. Meyer points out that Josephus wrote his book, The Antiquities of the Jews, in his native Aramaic, and others helped him translate it into Greek. There's an incident in the Antiquities of the Jews that informs us about the dominance of both Hebrew and Aramaic in first century Palestine. When Emperor Titus, who was the 10th Roman Emperor, besieged Jerusalem, Josephus was sent to convince the Jews to surrender the city, and he spoke to them with the language of the ancestors. The language of the ancestors in this case was Aramaic. In order for everyone to understand the emperor's message, Josephus spoke to them in the common language of the people, which was Aramaic, the language of both the educated and uneducated. The fact that the common language of the Jewish people was Aramaic does not refute the fact that Jesus probably knew Greek. The Jewish community itself used Greek in several occasions. Jesus was likely able to communicate in Greek, as evidenced in his dialogue with Pontius Pilate during his trial, or in the healing of the servant of the centurion, as mentioned in Matthew chapter 8 and Luke chapter 7, or the Phoenician woman, as mentioned in Mark 7, who is referred to in Greek in the Gospel of Mark as Hellenes, or a Greek woman or a Gentile, which indicates that she spoke Greek. However, Jesus' knowledge of Greek was probably somewhat superficial, since it is unlikely that he was educated in Greek. And we also can't say that Jesus' teachings were originally in Greek. Now we come to the Hebrew language, the scriptural and ancestral language of the holy people of Israel, and which suffered a significant decline following the Babylonian exile and the return of the Jews to Palestine. While the Hebrew language declined, Aramaic, which was the language of the ancient Near East, began to spread increasingly. David Flusser, however, has a special view on this matter. He says, The spoken languages among the Jews of that period were Hebrew, Aramaic, and to an extent, Greek. Until recently, it was believed by numerous scholars that the language spoken by Jesus' disciples was Aramaic. It is possible that Jesus did, from time to time, make use of the Aramaic language. But during that period, Hebrew was both the daily language and the language of study. 
The Gospel of Mark contains a few Aramaic words, and this was what misled scholars. Today, after the discovery of the Hebrew Ben Sira, or Ecclesiasticus, of the Dead Sea Scrolls, and of the Bar Kokhba letters, and in the light of more profound studies of the language of the Jewish sages, it is accepted that most of the people were fluent in Hebrew. The Pentateuch was translated into Aramaic for the benefit of the lower strata of the population. The parables in the rabbinic literature, on the other hand, were delivered in Hebrew in all periods. There is thus no ground for assuming that Jesus did not speak Hebrew. And when we are told, as in Acts chapter 21 and verse 40, that Paul spoke Hebrew, we should take this piece of information at face value. Ben Sirah is also known as the alphabet of Ben Sirach, which is an anonymous medieval text inspired by the Book of Wisdom of Ibn Sirach. It is dated to be between 700 to 1000 AD, and it is a compilation of two lists of wisdom and parables, 22 of which are in Aramaic and 22 in Hebrew, which are arranged alphabetically. The Bar Kokhba letters, however, those are 15 letters, most of them written in Aramaic and Hebrew, and two of them are written in Greek. Those were directed by the leader Bar Kokhba to his subordinates, Yehonathan and Masabala, who sat at An Gedi on the western shore of the Dead Sea. While Aramaic was the prevalent language amongst the ordinary people of the first century Palestine, it was also the language of the Targum of the Jewish people. The Targum is the analogous for Targama in Arabic, which means translation. These were spoken translations of the Jewish scriptures, also called the Tanakh, that a professional interpreter would give in the common language of the listeners, such as Aramaic. In support of the prevalence of Aramaic, many bone inscriptions from the middle of the first century are written in Aramaic. The popularity of Aramaic in first century Palestine is evidenced in the Gospels. Many Aramaic scholars mention that the words of Jesus recorded in Greek in the Gospels have a more poetic nature and their meaning is made much clearer if rendered in the Aramaic language. One of the most common examples for this is the Lord's Prayer, as in Matthew chapter 6, verse 12. Forgive us our debts, also translated as sins or guilts, as we also forgive our debtors. The word debt here does not imply the sin or iniquity as in the Greek or the Hebrew translations. The word, however, in Aramaic, hopa, provides a richer and deeper metaphorical meaning in this context. More examples that prove the dominance of the Aramaic language in first century Palestine include the transliterations of certain Aramaic expressions, such as Talitha Kumi, or Kum in Greek, as in Mark chapter 5, verse 41, and also Abba, Father, 
as in Mark chapter 14, verse 36. The example that supports this proposition the most is that of Peter in the book of Acts where it says, This became known to all the residents of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their language, Hakildama, that is, field of blood, as in Acts chapter 1, verse 19. The word Hakildama is derived from the Aramaic word Bikildama, to which Luke, the author of the book of Acts, refers to by saying that the field was called in their language. This example suggests that the language which dominated over the Christians in the first century Jerusalem was Aramaic, given that the book of Acts was written in the first century. In conclusion, the nature of the question of what languages Jesus spoke is complicated. In light of the diverse linguistic landscape of the first century Palestine, which had four different languages, Latin, Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic. There's no reason to believe that Jesus spoke Latin, the language of the Roman authorities and officials at that time, and also the language of the wealthy Jews who dealt with these Roman officials, especially those from the families of the chief priests. Rather, Jesus most likely spoke Greek for communication and for public dealings with the Gentiles and with some Jews who were dispersed beyond the borders of Israel, also known as the Diaspora Jews. As for Hebrew, Jesus acquired the knowledge of the Hebrew language through instruction in the synagogue of Nazareth or in a rabbinical school near his home. Hebrew was the language he used in his debates with the scribes and Pharisees, whereas Aramaic was the best means of communication among Jesus' fellow Jews, which was clearly observed in the Gospels. John Meyer poses a critical question, and that is, how did Jesus talk with the Jews in Jerusalem during the final week of his life? We know that the first century Jerusalem was strongly influenced by the Hellenic culture, and during that time of the year, in other words, the time of the Passover, Jerusalem was crowded with Greek-speaking Jews from the diaspora. How did he interact with this multilingual and multicultural community? Meyer provides an intriguing answer. He asserts that Jesus taught the multitudes in Aramaic, and his teachings were translated by one of his disciples who knew Greek, either Andrew or Philip. What supports this opinion is what was mentioned in the Gospel of John, when some of the Greeks asked Philip to see Jesus. Now, among those who went up to worship at the festival were some Greeks. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and said to him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Then Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Notice the presence of Philip and Andrew in this scene, which supports Meyer's view. Thus, Jesus was a trilingual Jew, but not a trilingual teacher. In other words, he was able to speak three languages in casual conversations with his fellow Jews. However, 
He was unable to use these three languages effectively to communicate his teachings. Was Jesus educated? Did he not know how to read and write? How was he educated, and what proof is there if he was? Jesus grew up in the village of Nazareth, an obscure village not mentioned in the Old Testament. It is difficult to imagine any standard of formal education in such an underprivileged and meager environment. So the question now is, did Jesus know how to read and write? Well, just because Jesus was called a teacher didn't necessarily mean he knew how to read and write. Since in such communities which relied heavily on oral tradition as the means for transmitting knowledge, anyone could theoretically have become a teacher as well as influential, even without prior education. Nevertheless, the question presses, was Jesus educated or illiterate? To fully answer this question, we will examine internal as well as external evidence to understand the Jewish educational system at the time of Jesus. The internal evidence is retrieved from passages and statements from the New Testament, while external evidence rely on extra-biblical sources or sources from outside the Bible. There are three texts from the Gospels that indirectly indicate that Jesus was an educated man. The first is from John 8, the scene of the adulterous woman. The second is from John 7, where the Jews ask about Jesus' knowledge of the scriptures. The third is Luke chapter 4, where Jesus is expelled from the synagogue of Nazareth. We will examine each scene individually in a systematic and precise manner. Let's cover the first scene together, mentioned in John chapter 8, the scene of the adulterous woman. Jesus comes to the temple in the morning and sits with the people, teaching and preaching the kingdom of God. Some of the scribes and Pharisees bring to him a woman in their midst who committed adultery. And they tested and asked Jesus what they should do with her given that the law of Moses commands that she must be stoned as a punishment. Jesus did nothing except stoop down to the earth and with his finger began to write on the ground. When they persisted in asking him, he stood up and responded with clemency and said, Let anyone among you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. This phrase which proclaims the law of humanity and the law of truth, and which touches the oppressed, was said by the one who utters the law. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Thus each one of them was dismissed, and only the one without sin remained with her whose sin was known. But the question now is, what was Jesus writing with his finger on the ground? Raymond Brown answers this question with five possibilities. The first possibility dates back to the time of St. Jerome, along with an Aramaic manuscript of the Gospel, which was unearthed in the 10th century, and which indicated that Jesus was writing the sins of the scribes and Pharisees. 
The second possibility is that Jesus did as a judge would have in the imperial courts of the Roman Empire, writing his verdict before pronouncing it. However, if this is what happened the first time, and what was written was what Jesus announced to them, then what was it that Jesus wrote the second time? Because remember it says, They said this to test him, so that they might have some charge to bring against him. It continues by saying, Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. Then in John 8, 7 it says, When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let anyone among you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. In verse 8 it continues, And once again, he bent down and wrote on the ground. Thus, in this scene here, Jesus is writing twice on the ground. The third possibility is that some believe that what Jesus did was according to what was said in Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 13. O hope of Israel, O Lord, all who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be recorded in the underworld, for they have forsaken the fountain of living water, the Lord. The fourth possibility is that what Jesus wrote according to John chapter 8 verse 6 is the command that came in Exodus chapter 23 verse 1. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. The italicized words according to Raymond Brown fit the number of words that Jesus could have wrote in his stooped stance without shifting his position. The fifth possibility is that Jesus was exhibiting disdain and disapproval towards their actions. While they drowned in their sins, he did so by tracing lines on the ground while he was thinking. In conclusion, we cannot infer simply based on this scene on whether Jesus knew how to read and write since it does not indicate the nature of what Jesus was writing on earth, nor can we determine Jesus' level of education. The second scene is based on John chapter 7, where the Jews ask Jesus about his knowledge of the scriptures. On the fourth day of the Feast of the Tabernacles, Jesus ascended to the temple and then began to teach the crowds. The Jews were amazed and asked how this Galilean from Nazareth can know the books. How does he teach without proper training under the hands of a rabbi? As it says, The Jews were astonished at it, saying, How does this man have such learning, or in other translations, knows the letters or writings, when he has never been taught? As in John chapter 7, verse 15. The phrase, knows the writings, suggests that Jesus knew how to read. However, the question posed by the Jews to Jesus on his knowledge of the writings is more than just a question about his literacy, since one could have become a rabbi after being a disciple to one of the great and well-known rabbis. But in the case of Jesus, he was not a rabbi because of his discipleship to a well-known rabbi, but instead, he was a rabbi 
out of his own authority. Thus, the question the Jews posed here was concerned with the credibility of Jesus' knowledge of the writings and his teachings since he was not taught by one of the great rabbis. Scene 3 is based on Luke chapter 4, where Jesus is expelled from the synagogue of Nazareth. In Luke chapter 4, verses 16 to 30, we see Jesus returning by the power of the Spirit to Galilee, specifically to the city of Nazareth, the city where he was raised, and he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and rose to read. After he finished reading, being given the book of Isaiah, he preached the fulfillment of what was written and rebuked their consciences. So they rose and drove him out of the city and wanted to throw him down from the edge of the mountain, but passing through their midst, he went his way. If we take this scene from a historical perspective, we will have strong evidence for Jesus' literacy. However, let us further inspect the passage critically to understand the point St. Luke, the writer of the Gospel, wishes to make from these events. We will discover that St. Luke is not trying to give a historical account of this event. Rather, he is shedding light on transcendent theological dimensions that pertain to this event, as we will see later on. But to do so, let us first compare this passage from Luke with that of Mark chapter 6 verses 1 to 4. It says, He left that place and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. On the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astounded. They said, Where did this man get all this? What is this wisdom that has been given to him? What deeds of power are being done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Then Jesus said to them, Prophets are not without honor except in their hometown and among their own kin and in their own house. The text from the Gospel of Mark had a notable effect on Luke's text, as Fitzmaier points out that Luke the Evangelist had knowledge of what was mentioned in the Gospel of Mark. In fact, St. Luke used St. Mark's text alongside his own, which generated a highly profound scene with rich theological dimensions. When we examine the text from a historical perspective, we reach two very important conclusions. If we compare the text Jesus read from the book of Isaiah with the text that we have in the Gospel of Luke, we will notice that what Jesus read consists of several verses in different chapters. This can be retrieved from Luke chapter 4 verses 18 to 19. We will section the biblical verses from Luke into sections that run from A to E. In A, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the glad tidings to the poor. In B, 
He has sent me to heal the broken in heart. In C, to proclaim to captives deliverance and to the blind recovery of sight. In D, to set forth the crushed in deliverance. In E, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. If we compare the Greek rendering of these passages, as retrieved from the Greek New Testament, to the Greek Septuagint, we will notice that passages A to C are retrieved from Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1. It says, In A, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to announce glad tidings to the poor. In B, he has sent me to heal the broken in heart. In C, to proclaim to captives deliverance and to the blind recovery of sight. Passage D, however, is retrieved from Isaiah chapter 58, verse 6, where it says, And send out the devastated free. However, Passage E returns back to Isaiah 61, specifically verse 2 where it says, To call for an acceptable year for the Lord. Again, please remember, we can only see these differences if we compare the Biblical New Testament verses in Greek to that of the Greek Old Testament or Septuagint. The Greek New Testament is the original language of the New Testament, and the Greek Septuagint, or the Greek translation of the Old Testament, was the translation that became accepted in the Church. An intriguing question to ask is, how could Jesus have read this text from Isaiah by looking at one scroll that was open to one passage made up of verses from two different chapters? It is important to note that this passage from Luke chapter 4 has a more theological rather than a purely historical meaning. The rearrangement of the verses presents Jesus' message as a sign of his messiahship, which the people of Nazareth, his own people, rejected to the extent that they were about to throw him off the edge of the mountain. In summary, this passage, as like others from the Gospel, does not provide definitive evidence of Jesus' level of literacy, since, as we can see, the Gospels don't give a mere historical account of the life of Jesus. Rather, it is an account that is full of theological dimensions that proclaim to us the divinity of the Messiah the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let's turn our attention to external evidence or evidence outside of the Bible that will help us determine the education and the literacy level of Jesus. The first question to ask is, how was the Jewish education system in Jesus' time? This is the question that we will try to answer now and through this we will be able to form a picture regarding the mode and method by which Jesus received basic education and his ability to read and write. 
To provide a clearer picture on the nature of education during Jesus' time, we will examine the rabbinic texts between the 1st and 5th century AD, which the scholar Shmael Safre inspected and sheds light on the Jewish education system in the 1st century and perhaps a little earlier. In that system, the child was educated at the city school, where he learned to read the Hebrew scriptures, and the school was called Beit Hasifer, or the House of the Book. Such schools existed in the cities of Palestine, even the small ones, where the child began to learn the scriptures from the age of five, and at the age of ten began to learn the Mishnah, also known as the Oral Torah, which is the first major written collection known for the Jewish oral traditions. The child completes their basic education at the age of 11 or 12. The schools were a building or a room attached to the Jewish synagogue, and in small towns, the school was in the backyard of the teacher's home. The Talmud instructs that the teacher should be financially supported so that the poor children would not be deprived of education in such school systems. What makes this scene more evident is what was mentioned in the Gospels regarding Jesus' strong education in the Halakha and the Jewish law. The Halakha was a collective body of Jewish religious laws derived from the written and oral Torah. The Halakha is based on biblical commandments, subsequent Talmudic and Rabbinic law, and the customs and traditions compiled in the many books. Because Jesus was the firstborn amongst his family relatives, he was expected to learn the law, besides learning his father's occupation. This education took place in the synagogue of Nazareth, where primary religious instruction took place. This helps explain why, when Jesus was handed the book of Isaiah to read, the people asked, Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? In summary, and as we saw from the internal biblical evidence, the Gospels do not delve deeply into Jesus' literacy, since the Gospels are not merely historical accounts. How competent was Jesus in reading and writing? Was he as educated as the scribes and Pharisees? The Gospels do not provide us with enough evidence to make any conclusive answers. However, we have ample implicit evidence that Jesus knew Hebrew and Aramaic along with his knowledge of the law and books, as mentioned in John chapter 7, verse 15, and even what was mentioned in Luke chapter 4, verses 16 to 30. Finally, we know Jesus learned to read and write as a child at the synagogue of Nazareth, where he was raised. Although Jesus came from a rural and poor background, he was not a simple, or an illiterate Galilean villager. Jesus was brought up in a simple rural community of peasants. 
The word rural here can be misleading. Thus, Eric Wolf explains the meaning of the word when he says, Rural cultivators, they raise crops and livestock in the countryside. It is likely that every family had some land to cultivate in Galilee to sustain their livelihood, which coincides with what Eusebius of Caesarea mentioned in his book on church history, saying that Judas's family, who was Jesus' brother, had a small parcel of land to toil with their own hands. This applied to most of the people of Galilee, where each family owned a piece of land to cultivate, where the land size was dependent on the financial stratum of each family. According to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 6, verse 3, where it says, Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary? And Matthew, chapter 13, verse 55, Is not this the carpenter's son? This fact that Jesus was a carpenter is ecclesiastically well known. However, what is the meaning of the word carpenter or tekton in Greek, which was mentioned by the Gospels? The carpenter in first century Palestine was the one who made wooden furniture, as well as the wooden plows for plowing agricultural land or the wooden yoke placed on the shoulder of the bull. Some researchers suggest that Joseph and Jesus were carpenters who worked to rebuild Sepphoris, a city six kilometers north of Nazareth, which Herod wanted to build with a Hellenistic style. Reasoner proposes an interesting assumption that the word carpenter is evident in the Aramaic language Nagara, which in some Talmudic sources means teacher and that the term Bar-Nagara, or the son of a carpenter, means the son of a teacher or a student, and that it is a term given to people who are familiar with the scriptures. Giza Vermish also supports this assumption. In summary, the work Jesus did was demanding, both physically and psychologically, since he was responsible for sustaining his family, both financially and socially. Jesus worked in cultivating the land, in carpentry, and in building prosperous cities. Thank you for watching this video. Don't forget to like and share, and make sure you subscribe so you don't miss any future videos.